and being South African, he essentially just screams at him in Afrikaans, which is similar enough to German that yeah. it, he just sounds like an angry German <laughs> telling him off. Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, uh, hosted by me, Dave, the History Nerd. And by me, Dave, the Tech Geek. And today we're going to be looking at the story of one Captain Jeffrey Morphy, which, again, I don't know what Great to name. say with these names, but they're fantastic. Yeah, very, such a good name. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, Captain Jeffrey Morphy, he was in uh, Fourth Squadron of the South African Air Force, so he was from... South Africa, uh, from Natal, actually. And at the point of his capture, he was flying for the Desert Air Force, uh, which uh, was made up of the RAF, uh, the South African Air Force, New Zealand, and Australian Air Forces, and uh, parts of the American uh, US Air Force, and uh, other assorted allied uh, Air Forces. So it was a combined effort. Okay. uh, As part of the North African campaign in... Uh, at this point, Libya in 1942. Right. Um, so, yes, he was uh, flying a Tomahawk, which was a US-built single-seater fighter, uh, but was being used by the, in this case, South African Air Force. And uh, he was shot down on the 4th of June, 1942. Uh, so he, he was actually taking part in the Battle of Bir Hakim in Libya. It's a, it was actually in an oasis in the Libyan desert, roughly about 30 miles uh, southwest of Tobruk. Right, and okay. it was actually fighting in part of the defence of Tobruk, yeah. uh, which is a major port on the north coast of Libya, on the Mediterranean, and was one of the major scenes of battles. Uh, you know, it, it, won, it was one of those places that changed hands multiple times. Ah, and okay. I think that I think the first battle of Tobruk has kind of became legendary because it held out for an extremely long time and was continually being resupplied by ship because it was the sole port that was still in British hands and all all this sort of stuff and it became a bit of a legendary location in in sort of the mythology of North African campaign. Yeah. Oh, interesting. However, uh, so yeah, he he was shot down as part of that defense and uh, he was. On operations over Bir Hakim, because there was a battle taking place in this uh, oasis at the time, and was fl- over flying it, and was attacked by Stukas, which were a German, sort of a fighter bomber, so they famously were dive bombers, uh, right, so okay. yep. they're the yep. ones with the Jericho trumpet, yep. uh, so you hear the big wail as it goes down, yes. and then pulls up right at the last second and drops a bomb. Yeah. Uh, very good for pre- precision bombing over things like a ship or yeah. specific locations such as Tobruk, yeah. a, nice, a nice port. So he was attacked by a couple of Stukas and experienced engine, engine trouble and so had to turn back for home. However, on the way back home, he was then attacked by four uh, Messerschmitt 109s um, and was shot down and had basically had to take a for- forced landing uh, in the desert north of Bir Hakim. That's a bit gutting to do that on the way home. Yeah, a little bit. And yeah. also in the desert, doesn't really... No, uh, it's not the best. Um, and as part of that attack stroke landing, he actually injured his left heart, left arm. In, you know, the way he describes it, it sounds like a fairly innocuous 
injury. Yeah. But later on, he's actually in hospital for several months. For a long time, yeah. So when you put it in that context, he then, you know, he basically says, I've been wounded through the left arm. I walked for about five miles east of the minefield where I was picked up by a German armored car. So basically, he's got an injured arm that's bad enough to keep him in hospital for months on end, but he walks through a minefield. Yeah, and the description is, I've been, I've been wounded through the left arm. That makes me feel like there was a hole. There was a gap. Yeah, exactly. Which I I assume you know, may have been uh, from a bullet of some description. Possibly, or, yeah. Um, or something along those lines. Uh, it isn't made clear. But as I say, it was bad enough for him to be in hospital for several months later on. Ha- having been captured by a German armoured car, uh, just the other side of the minefield, he was taken to Derna. And remained there for about a week uh, when he was then sent by hospital ship to Naples. Which basically meant that he was crossing the Mediterranean by ship during the Battle of Tobruk. Which basically means that you've got a major battle taking place on a uh, Mediterranean port. Mm -hmm. So there was going to be a lot of shipping, a lot of air um, activity... Uh, both bombers and fighters and Tobruk to Naples is quite a short distance relatively speaking crossing the Mediterranean by ship at this time probably not the safest time to be taken to the water shall we say yeah I was going to say I imagine there's a lot a lot of dangers going on there at once. Yeah, I mean, even in a hospital ship, which was likely to have been uh, covered I mean, absolutely festooned in the Red Cross symbol even that you know, there's always the possibility of a stray torpedo or yeah. stray dive bomber or something like that. Yeah, I wouldn't like to chance it. Yeah, it wouldn't be my first choice. However, he safely arrived in Naples and uh, from there was sent to Caserta and oh, for a hospital there and then on to a place called Luca, which is near Pisa. Right. Uh, so okay. a bit further north than Naples. Yeah. Um, and he remained there for a couple of months, actually. So this is you know, what I was meaning by the injury was bad enough for him to be in hospital for, he says, about two months. So he then is taken to a couple of camps. He goes to uh, Camp uh, Campo 21, which is in Chieti, uh, for a couple of months, and then Campo 47 in uh, near Medina, uh, which is in northern Italy, in the Emilia-Romagna region, uh, which uh, Medina's more famous for uh it's the home of ferrari lamborghini maserati and balsamic vinegar nice um and also a prisoner war camp in the second world war <laughs> Good company. Uh, yeah absolutely absolutely and I, I don't want to um i don't want to go into too much detail on the italian uh versus german prisoner war camp system but i think it's worth just giving a brief overview at this stage yeah because uh, obviously it, the Italian prisoner war camps and the German prisoner war camps were not the same. It wasn't the same system. No, um, they were guarded by different sets of guards, different nationalities, obviously. Um, and by and large, I, th- I think it's probably whether it's by geography or by standard of security, it's generally accepted that it was probably harder to escape from an Italian camp. Right. Okay. For a variety of reasons, but I think I think certainly geography played a part because yeah. if you're in Germany, you're in the middle of Europe and can go in pretty much any direction. If you're in Italy, you're heading north. Yeah, there's not <laughs> not a lot of choice. Yeah, exactly. And you're then heading towards the Alps. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's an element of it was difficult to get away, but also there there is some argument that the Germans tended to use to to put it bluntly and a bit harshly maybe, but the Germans tended to use the absolute dregs of their resources to guard a camp. It 
pretended not to be their crack troops. Well, to be fair, they had other things on their mind. At the yeah, time. exactly, like two fronts. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm not saying that it was the Italian crack troops either, yeah. but the Germans almost made a virtue of using the, the last remnants yeah, of their okay. uh, resources to guard the camps. Guard, yeah. And so they maybe weren't coming up against the most intelligent or most capable group of people in the German camps. As I said, geography also lends itself to it. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, and this is actually quite an interesting fact on this escape, is uh, there tended to not be all that many escapes prior to the Italian armistice. Ah, okay. Um, Just so I and everyone else is clear, what is the Italian armistice? So, the Italians basically changed sides in the middle of the war. They went from being a member of the Axis powers, which was Germany, Italy, and Japan, primarily. Yep, okay. And essentially reached a peace with the Allies, switched sides, and this is all very potted history. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, um... Switch sides and join the Allies, reached a uh, peace settlement, and from a prisoner of war perspective, the fallout of that was uh, the Allied prisoners of war who were being held by the Italians were fa- effectively told to stay put right, okay. in in the camps. The Allies had just landed on the Italian peninsula yeah. and were trying to advance through Italy. Yeah. So the idea of telling them to stay put was that they didn't want literally thousands of prisoners of war wandering right, around okay. the Italian countryside okay. while there's an active live front. Yeah, that makes so sense. So the idea was to liberate rather than have them trying to escape. Or just walk out, yeah. But in reality, what actually happened was the advance didn't move very quickly and the Germans basically flooded Italy right. and took over all the camps and then held them prisoners. So then they were just stuck there. They were kind of just stuck there and then eventually moved up to Germany um and so the, the uh, but the armistice did provide a small window of opportunity in which a number of people number of prisoners of war did escape and so there tends to be you know the vast majority of italian prisoner of war escapes took place after the armistice right. or to be more accurate around the armistice time they got out that's when they got away from the camp and then kind of proceeded to reach the allied front line okay way. so when the armistice was happening but before the germans came in and locked it all up again yes yeah, so this is around about september 1943 that the armistice took place which mm-hmm. is also around about the same time that the allies landed yeah. in italy and so the, the the significance of that of course is that morphew escaped in march 1943 so this is six months prior to the armistice which makes his escape almost unique right okay uh in the sense that it was successful escape prior to the before armistice was, yeah so in that, as I say, in that sense, his escape is almost unique. To be fair, through some of the details of how he escapes, I think a lot of this is quite unique in the way. It yes, was yeah, I think I think that's actually pretty fair. Um, so yeah, I mean, he only actually made one escape attempt and succeeded first time. So you know, hundred percent success rate. One and done. That's it. Yeah, one and done. Exactly. <laughs> Very nice. Um, and so he goes into quite a lot of detail as to how he escaped. Um, so yes, he, he had already immediately started planning with a fellow South African, Captain Colliers, um, who he actually met in his previous camp in Kieti. Um And the, in many ways, the plan was fairly simple. He uh, They wanted to walk out of the main gates uh, dressed as Italian carbonari. I mean, just literally walk out the front door. Yeah, <laughs> dressed as an Italian policeman. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and, and why not? 
But in actual fact, you know, going into some of the details about it, you know, you kind of think, well, how do you get how how is that possible? I mean, the Italian uniforms for a start. Exactly. However, he he basically says that you know, having been in hospital upon capture, their uniforms were taken away from them temporarily, and they were given Italian uniforms to wear, which in and of itself was not particularly uncommon. Upon capture, you know, they they might strip search them, take away their uniforms for uh, checks right. or or and for cleaning, for that matter, and just give them back something to wear. Yeah, give them back something to wear. So sometimes, sometimes it was a mishmash of other captured uniforms, such as Dutch, Polish, French, whatever, mm-hmm. and sometimes it was just whatever uniforms were available. Right. You know, because if you've been captured and you you bled all over your battle dress, yeah. That might be something that they want to take away to clean up yeah. and that sort of stuff. I mean, from a health perspective and stuff as yes, well. Yes, because uh, they were still providing basic medical yeah. care. So that, that's the sort of circumstance, especially in the hospital, sort of circumstance in which it's perfectly normal for a uniform to be removed and they were given something else to wear. Yeah. Not wholly unreasonable, actually. So that that's how they ended up with an Italian uniform. However, he then goes on to say that rather than giving it back when it was asked for it to be returned you know yeah. when they when they received their uniform back yeah they just kind of held on to it uh, just forgot you know he says we managed to retain these uniforms by hiding them in our mattresses which doesn't seem it's not super sophisticated no not not overly and it seems like there wasn't a particularly thorough search to get no. them back either yeah you would almost sort of think that the hospital workers would be like we're short two sets of uniforms here and we know it but and we have two guys over here that we gave them to, but <laughs> yeah. didn't get them back from. Um, again, a lack of suspicion seems to <laughs> seems to have played itself out here. Yeah. Um, through that, you know, they they managed to retain uh, Italian uniforms, which is extremely helpful if you're trying to escape from an Italian prisoner war camp. Yeah, I imagine that helps quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. So having almost got the basics, they then started to develop their disguise, essentially. Yeah. So yeah, they, they talk about, um, we embroidered Italian yeah, cap right, badges yeah. and epaulettes and made ourselves cardboard bandoliers and revolver holsters. I think that's incredible. The fact that they're blacking this with like bits of cardboard as revolver holsters and, and, and um, was it bandoliers? Yeah. That, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, it, and in all of this, it's actually quite nice because they kind of acknowledge the fact that they were receiving help from some mates from South Africa. Yes. So it was kind of all South Africans banding together in this Italian camp. Uh, fill the guard, I suppose. Yeah. And it's like, I like the, the line, they, they scrounged our civilian kit for us so that as few people as possible in the camp should know that we were contemplating escape. Yeah. It's just the fact that there, there's a real group mentality of just like, yeah, we'll help you with that and chuck that this way and that way and just good luck. <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, they've they've sol- hand handpicked a couple of trusted colleagues. Yes, definitely to help them out. Yeah, but they're leaving it there, which is similar to the principle of the escape committee. Yeah, and so yeah, by by working kind of closely with these colleagues, uh, they actually managed to pull together quite an extensive escape kit. Yeah, I mean this this is again this is. Going back to what I've said before about how sophisticated, well-thought-out, well-planned escapes had a better chance of succeeding. Yes. And obviously we are looking at predominantly successful escapes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this one's definitely been well-thought-out. You know, he's got six different categories of uh, kit 
types that he has managed to pull together. And we'll, we'll go through it, actually. So, with, with you know, first of all, clothing. And he, in this one, he separates it out between himself and his colleague. You know, he, he's managed to pull together khaki trousers, which have been dyed with Italian ink. You know, he even goes so far as to say, you know, we dyed them repeatedly so as not to run in the rain, yep. which is quite an important detail because you look ridiculous otherwise. <laughs> they had their carbonari uh, uniform, a Greek great coat, uh, which a prisoner wore Taylor had altered to a civilian cut. That shows real thought, I think, because yeah. it's it's not just the clothing, it's it's the cut and design that wouldn't be worn by a soldier or or anything like that. It's the civilian thinking about when they get out. Yeah, which comes back to points I've made previously about assimilating into the local yeah. uh, population, not standing out. And it's just it's focusing on the detail that's that you know makes the difference, I think, here. Yeah. Um, Which actually, the next item on the list is, is probably my favourite of, of of the description there. Uh, brown shoes which had been blackened and to which false tops had been attached, uh, had been stitched to be ripped off once they'd left the camp. Yeah. The fact that they've, they're effectively just changing the design of their shoe. I'm assuming it says blackened. I don't know whether that could then be returned to a brown colour afterwards if they wash them or whether they've just been blackened for permanently. But the fact that they've got the tops off that they can just rip off yeah, casually as anything, completely change the design of the shoe, so you, people aren't looking for that in the future as they leave. Yeah, in, <laughs> that kind of level of detail and thinking about it is fantastic. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's kind of it's almost like you know removing an article of clothing from the full monty or something. Yeah, it's just <laughs> rip them off, go. Exactly, we're good to go. Um, so that that that's his you know clothing, that's his disguise, and then his colleague Collier's. Uh, shoes and uppers uh, similar to um, Morphew. Uh, plus fours made from an old blanket. Again, the Carbonieri uniform, Greek tunic converted into a sports coat and dyed blue with ink and wine. And a s- very smart sports cap. Nice detail. Mm. Uh, which had been made from blanket material by the prisoner war tailor. So they then had this, basically the uniform over the top and then the filling clothing underneath so that yeah. they could escape in one disguise and get away in another. Yeah, just shed a layer of clothing and be gone. Yeah, exactly. Um, another part of their kit was the food, um, which actually I, I found uh, very interesting, this one. Um, so he talks about how it had to be very limited because of the difficulty of carrying it out the camp, which of course, if you're wandering around as an Italian policeman trying to get out... There's no reason for you to be carrying around a bunch of food. Yeah, prisoner yeah. war camp food. So you had, Or to appear like you are either. Yes. You, you, it had to be totally disguised. So in that sense, they had some difficulty with the food. Um, however, they did say that we had a New Zealand emergency ration apiece and as many BMAX bars as we could get into our pockets. I want to pick up on that because I'd actually never heard of a BMAX bar. I was actually going to ask you if you knew what they were because I don't know what they are at all. So I, I've read a lot of escape reports and this was the first time I'd ever come across one was reading this one. Okay. I've never heard of them before so I, I looked into this right, as part of the research for this and utterly bizarrely I came across the information on what a BMAX bar was on a rowing website. <laughs> And there are a number of reasons for this. So, first of all, what is it? So, it's a wheat germ cereal bar, high in vitamin B and other supplements. Oh, is that why it's B Max? Yeah, exactly. So, it's it's basically an energy bar, a cereal bar, that sort of stuff. Um, And the reason why it's so highly associated with rowing is the factory where they were produced overlooked the boat race. 
Okay. And so they regularly advertised in the boat race programs. And this is going back to the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah. And it's uh, the location of the factory. I believe it's now gone, but it's now, it's roughly halfway. It's round about Hammersmith Bridge. Okay. Uh, I believe close to uh, the Sons of Thames pontoon. Right. There you go. Um, however, that was not the only detail that I managed to extract. I actually managed to find a description of what a BMAX bar was like. And this was written by... So the other reason it's closely associated with um, rowing is because in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, there wasn't a great deal of supplements around in sport in general. And because it was so closely associated with rowing, it became quite a popular supplement bar for rowers to use. Okay, right. And so this, whoever wrote this, um, had clearly you know experienced what a BMAX bar was like, <laughs> and he describes it as it had an unpleasant taste and smell, but that possibly only added to the idea that something so distasteful must be effective, <laughs> which doesn't really sell it in my book. No, but it does remind me of, uh, maybe this was just me, but I was, you know, when you're trying to take medicine as a child mm. and you always go, oh, it tastes horrible. And I was always told if it tastes horrible, it must be good for you. So that is a BMAX bar. Right. Okay. Well, you answered my question before I was going to ask it. So great. <laughs> yeah. And, and another detail I find, if anything, quite amusing, included in food is cigarettes. <laughs> yes. Um, which is per- perhaps indicative of a certain mindset of the prisoners of war. But the detail that they add is uh, we also had Italian cigarettes, which we got from other prisoners of war in exchange for uh, Red Cross cigarettes. So th- this is a detail that always seemed quite odd to me, but it kind of makes sense, which was that they seem to be able to recognise different nationalities cigarettes yes which i can only assume is because it was a lot more common to smoke back then and therefore if you were smoking a british cigarette it would stick out if you were in the middle of germany or italy whereas to us now because it's less common it's maybe less familiar with us yeah and therefore because i mean i'm going to be honest i i don't smoke and therefore i couldn't tell you benson and hedges from a lucky strike frankly I see what you mean. Like, there's certain brands that I'd be able to recognise, but if someone was just pulled a, uh, like a pack out of their pocket and it was a Spanish pack of cigarettes or whatever, I probably wouldn't immediately tell that that's what it was. No, but a lot of the escape reports and books, for that matter, make reference to the fact that they got local cigarettes yeah. so that they didn't stick out. And it always, as I say, it always seemed an odd detail to me, but maybe that's just because I don't smoke or maybe yeah. it's because it's less common these days and therefore i'm less familiar with them than they would have been in say the 40s yeah yeah i think that's probably true people would have it would have been something that was much more immediately recognizable i think yeah yeah so but nonetheless i quite enjoy the fact that they've included cigarettes in the food section of their (laughs) report so then, then they also make reference to having maps money compasses and there's a couple of interesting details uh again that come out in this um so they had a hand-drawn map of uh, the frontier and then a tracing of the northern half of a standard escape map of Italy. Uh, they also then talk about having the fly-button compass um, and also um, 200 lira, some of which they got from the escape committee. Now what these three things tell, which are not immediately obvious, all of these are indicators that escape help was being received in this camp from british intelligence okay. in the uk yeah right he specifically refers to a standard escape map fly button compasses 
um, were these minuscule compasses that they uh, managed to hide behind a button, basically. Right, okay, right, right. Um, I don't have a fly button, but I do have a uniform button compass. And they are um, smaller than the five pence piece. Right, when they say fly button, do you mean like the button that would have been at the top of the pair of trousers? Yes. Yeah, right, yep, okay. exactly. And then, as I say, money from the escape committee, that is also a major indicator yeah, of... Cool. Uh, British intelligence assisting an escaped here. Right. Um, and then finally, they talk about having, uh, interestingly, no identity papers, um, which seemed like a bit of a risk to me, especially given the manner in which they make their getaway. And this was another of the interesting points of this escape for me, is by and large, we have looked at escapers that have either travelled by train or public transport and made a quick getaway yeah. or travelled entirely on foot and made a slow getaway but kind of hidden in plain sight a yeah, little yeah. bit he does both Yes, and that was really interesting for me especially for um, for someone who did not travel with papers because typically if you couldn't get your hands on papers you went by foot yeah because you didn't want to risk getting stopped and searched by anyone exactly and quite often you had to show paperwork to buy a train ticket although this guy got lucky and didn't yeah but quite often you did and so it was interesting to me that he kind of used both manners of escape however another interesting point he does add in is that he still took the precaution of carrying general service uh, a general service button and a camp coupon note basically it identifies that he's a prisoner of war so that if he is captured he's then able to uh, rather than uh, be taken into general prisoner population yeah. or be accused of being a spy, he gonna... could prove that he was a prisoner of war. Yeah. So he still took that precaution, even if he didn't have Italian identity papers. Yeah. So moving on to the escape itself. So he escaped on the 3rd of March, 1943, which is nine months after he was captured. Yeah, he wasn't there for very long. No, especially when you're given how long he was in the, in the hospital. Yeah. And he was, you know, he wasn't spending any time digging a tunnel or anything like that. So um, he kind of just goes. He spends most of his time preparing for the escape and yes. preparing this kit, but he doesn't actually, you know, the escape itself is a fairly instantaneous mm-hmm. event. And so he describes it as, um, and again, there's a really interesting detail in here that I quite liked. We got out of the camp at about 1900 hours of 7pm on the 3rd of March 1943. We planned the escape to take place just before the arc lights along the wire came on because when the lights did go on there was an arc lamp shining in the face of anyone entering or leaving the main gates of the prisoner war compound. The reason I like that detail is it, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, wooden horse escape that we did right at the start of yep. the series whereby uh, they timed it specifically so that the they were registered in the appell, but they managed to get away in time yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for the train. a specific train which would take them to their intended destination. Yep. That level of detail, again, you know, going for such specific timings is marginal gains here. Yeah, and but it had to be timed to the letter to as well. Yeah, to, almost to the second. Yeah. But it is marginal gains, and it's just they're giving themselves that just little bit of a better chance to yeah. succeed at each stage. And another detail that they add, uh, we also waited till the guard had just been relieved so that the new sentry would not know whether there were still any uh, carbonieri left in the camp. So again, a marginal gain that they were able to exploit yes. to their advantage. And it's, it's just this attention to detail where they're giving themselves a little bit of a better chance to succeed 
at every single step of the week. Yeah, they're using them well because they basically just become cumulative, don't they? The you know the marginal marginal um, benefits, but everything piles up. To, yeah, yeah, to it, make it the best option for them in that moment. It, exactly. Uh, there, there was one other detail um, that I that I quite liked in the escape, and again, it was one of those marginal sort of benefits to them at the time to create a larger distraction. They seem to have got a couple of people basically to just have a bit of a sing song outside, like on the inside of the camp to yeah. distract everyone. Basically, they got two different parties of people who were singing to walk up to each other and join in the middle and just basically have a sing-along, which distracted all the guards to the point where all they had to do was wave at the guard at, t- at the gate and they just kind of let them through because they were more concerned with yeah. this little impromptu party that was happening. So we've talked about the use of distractions in previous uh, episodes, uh, in, including our last episode uh, in the barrel, uh, where he uh, used a fake boxing match to try and climb over... Um, a guard tower, yes, which unfortunately didn't succeed because I, I I love the hootspur <laughs> of it, but um, yeah, so it's, it's it's not uncommon to try and use these distractions, and you know, you could argue the wooden horse as well with the yeah vaulting true. horse, um, and so they they basically kind of do the same thing as you say, you know, one guy had a concertina, which I assume is kind of like a accordion, I think it is, yeah, yeah, and then there was another group that were singing, and they just kind of. Met in the middle. And Met in the middle a, and started having the sing song, almost like an impromptu like karaoke session or something, and yeah, just distracted everyone around them. I thought that was great. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed that too. You know, they they basically got themselves waved through because they weren't a rowdy group of yes uh, revelers, shall we say? Um, and so having having got through the gate, having been nodded through, waved through by the guard, they essentially made their way into the compound, but didn't actually go into any of the buildings. Mm-hmm and just hung around in the dark so you know they didn't go into the buildings because they didn't want to be recognized and so they just hung around in the dark for uh, six hours actually (laughs) from eight o'clock at night until two in the morning and i suppose the point of that was to just kind of wait until it was the dead of night so that no one would see them basically walking out of camp it's a big risk though to just hanging around in the gut in the compound for that long it also sounds very cold and uncomfortable yeah it's not like they're lounging in a nice warm kitchen (laughs) uh you know fires blazing got a nice cup of tea or coffee or something like that you know that it's it doesn't seem very pleasant however i suppose uh, if if it enables you to just walk out unnoticed it's worth the risk yeah you you um you you find a way to make it through that uncomfortableness. Yeah. And so having having escaped, they then make their way to uh, the train station at Modena. Um, and kind of, they, you know, t- took a couple of hours to reach there, but they managed to catch a nine o'clock train, which took them straight to Milan. And uh, although, you know, it says that uh, we got third class tickets without difficulty, though we had no Italian paper. So presumably they weren't checking. Maybe it was just for third class or... Yeah, I did wonder that when they... Because they specifically mentioned third class when yeah. they were on the trains. Yeah. I did wonder whether that was part of the reason that maybe they weren't stopped as much as they possibly could have been. Yeah, possibly. I, um, I, but I don't know. That's just Yeah, there's, there's no specific detail given on that. However, he does say there was a particularly overcrowded train uh, to Milan. And despite efforts to be engaged in conversation, he either pretended to be dumb or asleep. Now, yeah. I, th- I think dumb is the 1940s 
pre-politically correct term for someone who is is mute isn't is it? Mute. you can't yeah. talk yeah and so having having arrived in milan uh, around about midday uh they kind of they had to kill time again so <laughs> and uh so they talk about they walked around town carefully avoiding the station as two other south africans who had previously escaped had been caught loitering about a station um which again i've talked about learning from previous either previous attempts made by yourself or previous attempts made by colleagues that you've spoken to in the camps and just kind of learning the lessons of mistakes and errors that were made on these previous attempts in order to maximize your opportunity next time yeah and so they specifically make reference to that and that they had learned from someone else um and so again they, they only had a couple of hours to kill before they then got a train from milan to como uh, of Lake Como fame, uh, which was a three o'clock train, uh, again traveling third class. However, while on the train, they seem to have got themselves separated. And uh, he says, When the train stopped at a station, Colliers kicked me, and though this was not one of our prearranged signals, I followed him from the carriage, thinking he might have seen some suspicious person or might be going to the lavatory on the station. However, in the crowd, I lost sight of Colliers and did not see him again. I therefore got into another coach. It was second class, and the conductor turned me out into third class apartment. Essentially, you know, he's he's managed to just get himself separated, which I'm sure wasn't the plan. But no, um, I suppose if you're travelling by train and you know, you're you're not able to communicate in the open, yeah, in the same way that you would be if you were just walking cross country, and and therefore there's there's clearly just a communication breakdown here. Um, but it doesn't seem to have particularly put him off. In actual fact, um, he, he reached Como late afternoon, early evening of essentially the day of his escape on the 4th of March. So was, you know, he, he left the camp at, what, 7 o'clock the previous evening and by within 24 hours, within one day's travel, um, he's already reached uh, Como, which means that Modena is about 250 kilometres from the Swiss border. Right, okay. In one day, he has travelled 225 of those 250 kilometres. It's pretty impressive. Which is pretty impressive and kind of gives you an idea of the importance of getting out of the vicinity very quickly. Yes. Which is not always possible on foot. Yeah. But is possible by train if you can get the the resources and get on the train and get out. And so this, again, highlights and emphasises the importance of that. So having reached Como, uh, basically the intelligence he'd been given was to find a dry riverbed that took him up to the frontier. And he seemed to have spent most of his time actually just trying to find this riverbed. Yeah, I did see that. It, it seemed to have not been an obvious solution. He tried until three in the morning to find this dried riverbed that seemed to just not exist. It, it seems like someone sort of went, oh yeah, you'll find the riverbed, don't worry, it's, it's easy, yeah, you'll yeah. find it. Doddle. <laughs> and, ha- having failed to find this dry riverbed, he kind of doubles back on himself and finds a, a semi-disused factory to hide himself up in. And again, there's a, there's a great detail while in here because basically... <laughs> yeah, this is good. This is great. Um, essentially, while hiding in the factory, a couple of dogs sniffed him out, and uh, which dogs are wont to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the owner essentially tried to come and interrogate him a little bit. And being South African, he essentially just screams at him in Afrikaans, which is 
similar enough to german that yeah. it he just sounds like an angry german <laughs> telling them off and he actually said you know he told this guy that he was a german and how dare he kind of question him and you know sod off and leave me alone sort of thing and so yeah i, I quite enjoyed the fact that he used his afrikaans um to pass himself off as a german as a german and then i almost wondered why he didn't try to escape that way yeah possibly i don't know but I did like them in this moment. It was just like, um, that took the wind out of his sails and I walked out of the building. It's like he stunned him into sort of a silence and just left. Yeah, and I, in, in my head, like the way he exited the building was quite dramatic. Yeah, and in a bit of a huff. And like, yeah. How dare you talk to me like that? Haughty, you might say. <laughs> um, yeah, so ha- having failed in his efforts to use this disused factory or semi-disused factory, he went back into Como and actually... Uh, kind of went back on his own advice which was not to hang around the railway station because he did that in the hope of finding his colleague again however he he says that he learned afterwards that his colleague had arrived <laughs> in Como later and been caught uh which is why of course they never met up again yes um so yeah ha- having found the riverbed uh which he does eventually succeed Wait. in doing yay um go him uh he he said, it's, it's, again, it's quite quite good attention to detail. He goes he goes into a hill overlooking it and scouts out the area that he's about to walk up. So rather than just following the riverbed, he actually does some reconnaissance and tries to scout it out, you know, look to look towards the frontier, see if yeah. there's any guards there, identifying some options as to how he might cross the frontier, given that it is guarded, all this sort of stuff. So again, it's, there's some really good attention to detail that he's applying here. Um, so, you know, he then returned to the road and, and walked towards the frontier until he reached a, a branch country road, which branched off towards the mouth of a railway tunnel. And so he he, he basically followed the branch road to, a di- again, a disused factory. He's good at finding disused buildings. He, he really is. Um, instead of trying to dash across the frontier or, you know, waiting till dark and trying to crawl across while the guards aren't looking or something like that, he basically climbs into the factory. And from what I can tell, this factory was in no man's land. And he basically walked across this empty factory and climbed over the other wall. <laughs> And so there were Italian sentries patrolling the outside of the factory, but by going through the factory, you managed to avoid them completely, <laughs> uh, which is actually quite smart. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, but that doesn't, you know, despite not being spotted, that doesn't mean that there weren't still, you know, wires and barbed wire yeah, of and course. what have you covering the frontier. So um, he scaled the factory wall um, to avoid the sentries and move closer to the frontier without being spotted. But he then had to climb over the wall again on the other side uh, and reached basically the wire covering the frontier. I had with me a pair of Italian nail scissors and a nail file. I found that the bells on top of the wire chimed if the wire was vibrated suddenly, but that if the wire was pulled slowly taut, it was possible to work on it. Which is actually quite a clever security system. It's a small thing, just putting a bell at the top. But yeah. obviously, if you're not looking, you suddenly hear this chiming. Yeah, if, if you're trying to get over that wall in a hurry because you think someone's coming around that corner, yeah, that's just going to ring the bell straight through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty um, clever. So, holding the wire taut, I filed and cut when trains were passing, which is presumably to cover the noise. I would assume so, yeah. Yeah. Finally, I cut it a strand of wire just as my scissors broke which is convenient mm. uh the fence was of diamond mesh and with one strand out, i unwound the wire till i'd made a hole about nine inches in diameter i stripped except for my underclothes and managed to wriggle through pulling my clothes through after me 
so essentially having got through the wire he kind of finds himself in no man's land yeah so he kind of makes for a shadowy area (laughs) yeah it's it's almost like the lion king it's like yeah we never go there unless we're escaping the italians yeah everything the sun touches yeah (laughs) and so yeah he, he he literally quite openly says you know um he just walked through no man's land and reached switzerland um which he achieved around about 11 30 at night on the 5th of march so he's basically got from modena to switzerland in a day and a half that's pretty dang impressive pretty very you know very very rapid escape um i mean they would barely have even noticed that he left by the time he got to switzerland very and i know this is what you were saying earlier is a very efficient escape yeah he's really maximized the marginal gains and the opportunities that presented themselves to me it comes across to me as a very well planned out escape yeah however he's only just reached switzerland which again as we've discussed previously has uh is landlocked um and doesn't exactly have regular flights between the uk and and and, and switzerland Switzerland. yeah exactly and so having reached there you know he he gets sent from lugano uh to Bern, which Mm -hmm. is of course the capital and uh he's then assisted on his escape from uh, Switzerland to Gibraltar. So he does end up in Gibraltar. Right, okay. Now, his, his escape report doesn't go into any great detail on what this journey entailed, but we have kind of covered it in the past because I've mentioned before that there were uh, evasion lines that guided people through occupied Europe towards yeah. Gibraltar. And so he, he basically linked up with one of them um, whereby he, he will have gone through... Uh, probably to Geneva, and from there you tra- you travel to Marseille, down to the Pyrenees, cross the Pyrenees on the Barcelona side, uh, travelled to Madrid, and then down to Gibraltar. Yeah. Uh, one detail I did manage to kind of eke out was that he was held in a prison in Fugueras, which uh, probably means that he was captured upon reaching Spain and was just held in the prison for a while. But usually, what happened was the uh, either the local British consulate or the embassy in Madrid were alerted to the fact that a British prisoner of war had been captured and was being held in the prison, and they basically got them out and repatriated them. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he he that that is how many of these prisoners travel from Switzerland. To, so they actually had to go back into occupied Europe, um, which seems quite a risky business. Yeah. <laughs> in order to get out, but you had a much better chance of actually getting back to the UK from Gibraltar yeah. by virtue of the fact that it's British territory yeah. than you did from Switzerland, whereby you're essentially left kicking your heels. Yeah. And so that is how he um, re- managed to return to the UK, was by going back into occupied Europe and making his way to Gibraltar in that ah, way. Oh, very interesting. But because he had reached Switzerland, he was able to link up with the evasion lines that existed. Yes. So these pre-existing evasion lines were... He, he just kind of fed into it. and Yeah. So yeah, he eventually managed to get back to the UK uh, 17th of January 1944, which is just shy of a year after he escaped. So he escaped on the 3rd of March 1943 and he got back to the UK on the 17th of January 1944 which actually gives you an idea of how long it took to get from Switzerland to Gibraltar yes although these lines existed they were not necessarily particularly fast moving no they weren't very speedy um, because they they were clandestine operations so you were trying to avoid detection trying not to be spotted I mean you were 
at risk of being captured by the Gestapo. If you were working on these evasion lines and were captured by the Gestapo, you were only ever going to end up one way. If you were lucky, you ended up in the concentration camp. Right. Yeah. If you were unlucky, you were taken to a wall and shot. Yes. So they were very clandestine, very yeah. slow moving as a result because they weren't. They didn't want to attract attention. Yeah. Um, so quite often you'll. It's not uncommon for people to get to Switzerland relatively quickly. Not necessarily as quickly as Morphew did. Yep. Because I mean, he was spectacular. Very quick. quickly, yeah. I mean, we we talked about uh, rapid escapes with Cotner, Williams, yes. and Philpot. All, yeah, all of them All of them got away within five days, I think it was. I, it, yeah. But this guy's taking the biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, re- in reaching neutral territory within a day and a half. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's pretty spectacular, especially covering 250 kilometres yes. in that time. Um, and then it just took him another ten months to get home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. But the, but that that does give you an idea of how these evasion lines operated. Okay. Um, well, thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at fit. W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at fytwiopod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.